Becoming mystic, becoming monster. The logic of the infinite in Kierkegaard, Kusa, and Deleuze. At the beginning of the logic of sense, Deleuze discusses the idea of pure becoming. Plato, he argues, distinguishes between two dimensions. The first is that of fixed and measurable qualities, of essences which can be named and understood in and through ideas. The second dimension is more slippery, a becoming which never occupies a fixed point. When something is in the process of becoming hotter, for example, it is arbitrary and false to attribute fixed measure to it. So far so obvious, perhaps. But for Deleuze, this pure becoming is something wild, paradoxical, and mad. For here, the direction of change in time is no longer unilinear. When Lewis Carroll's Alice drinks the magic potion and starts to grow, she's getting bigger than she once was. But at the same time, she is smaller than she will be. Deleuze's comment on this is worth quoting at length. This is the simultaneity of a becoming whose characteristic is to elude the present. Insofar as it eludes the present, becoming does not tolerate the separation or the distinction of before and after, or of past and future. It pertains to the essence of becoming to move and to pull in both directions at once. Alice does not grow without shrinking, and vice versa. Good sense affirms that in all things, there is a determinable sense of direction, sense. But paradox is the affirmation of both senses or directions at the same time. Becoming cannot be captured by the fixed idea, or even by the direction of time's arrow. Common sense protests. If Alice gets bigger, then the direction of her becoming is determined. However, this misses the significance of the paradox. There is no rest in Alice's becoming. It refers itself simultaneously to what lies behind and before, but there is no defined moment in which those categories of behind and before stay still and in which they are located outside the boundaries of the present moment. No, it is in the moment itself that pure becoming happens. Alice can say, I am right now in the process of becoming smaller than I will be. Deleuze is trying to unearth a reality which lies below the surface of things, a subterranean dualism between what is able to receive the fixity of the idea and what does not. Even beneath things, is there not still this mad element which subsists and occurs on the other side of the order that ideas impose and receive? Language is placed under strain here, unless we see also in language that which exceeds any fixed definition and puts things in motion once more. Paradox, the simultaneity of opposite affirmations, is where the subterranean force of language breaks through to the surface of discourse. Here, the self and God are destabilized, since personal uncertainty is not a doubt foreign to what is happening, but rather an objective structure of the event itself, insofar as it moves in two directions at once, and insofar as it fragments the subject following this double direction. My aim in this essay is to trace this paradoxical logic in two radically different thought worlds, those of Nicholas of Cusa and of Kierkegaard. In each case, I wish to suspend certain interpretive contexts. Cusa is often read through the lens of what he owes to Neoplatonism. Kierkegaard, 
for all he lives in a most clearly post-nominalist modernity, is still frequently understood in terms of a Lutheran-inflected orthodoxy. The value and fertility of these readings aside, I propose to offer a modest alternative, a reading of certain texts which engage with the logic of infinity and its apparent paradoxes. By necessity, this is a very limited exercise, since I am more concerned with elucidating a problem than with crafting overarching readings of either figure. Kusa and Kierkegaard are selected for two reasons. First, in different ways they articulate the logic of what it is to think the infinite in terms of unavoidable paradox. And my thesis is that this paradox is not merely a contingent barrier to the finitude of our thinking, but is in some way constitutive of infinity itself. The second reason is to explore in a specific way the possibility of communication between the discourses of mystical theology and existentialism. Without merely comparing Kusa to Kierkegaard according to a homogenizing logic, because to compare is to assume a common measure. What happens when these singular forms of thought encounter one another? What new possibilities can they induce for thinking the relationship between the absolute and the singular individual? Are the labels mystical and existential any longer adequate for such intensities of thought and experience? I begin with Kierkegaard and what I take to be key passages from his philosophical fragments on the passion of thought to think the unthinkable. I will argue that the paradox he offers is imminent to thought itself, in its process of becoming, and that there is a strange union being offered here between the individual, subjective thinker, and the eternal, one in which the identity of each of these elements is suspended and overtaken by something like Deleuze's pure becoming. I then turn to Kusa, and to the famous passages on the maximum and the minimum from Of Learned Ignorance. I offer a reading of this in terms of the text's own imminent movement, in both directions at once, between these opposite poles. I thus seek to recognize a dynamism into Cusa's paradox, one which contests analogical and hierarchical ontologies, even those of his own Neoplatonism, in a turn to a kind of univocity of being. Finally, through these two sections I sketch an argument for a logic of the infinite, which resists being subsumed by analogical or dialectical mediation. Here, Kusa and Kierkegaard's references to the equivalence between the human, the animal, and the divine are taken at face value. The mystical and the existential signify paradoxical states of pure becoming, in which the human is decentered. The problem is no longer one of how to purify the human soul as it approaches divine simplicity, or how to enact a transparently authentic movement of will. It is, instead, a question of destabilizing the self in order to signify the monstrosity of the divine. Kierkegaard, Thinking the Unthinkable Kierkegaard's philosophical fragments published under the pseudonym Johannes Klimischkus, proposes a thought experiment. What if the Socratic model of learning the truth is not the only one? Socrates, in this text at least, stands for the position that truth is recollected. In other words, the truth is already in us, and we simply need an appropriate stimulus or catalyst to help us discover what we already know. The teacher of truth is more like a midwife. She does not give the truth from the outside, she enables us to produce it from within ourselves. 
The teacher's importance is therefore limited. She becomes a vanishing occasion for us to become aware of truth we already possess. The thought experiment in Fragments offers an alternative to this model, one which hardly bothers to disguise its Christian character. On this approach, the truth is not within the learner. The teacher must give it to her afresh. What's more, since the learner is in a state of untruth, the teacher must give her even the capacity she lacks to recognize and receive the truth. In this model, the teacher becomes of intrinsic importance, and the historical moment in which the learner encounters her is decisive. As the scenario is developed in the book, the teacher takes on more and more the characteristics of a divine savior. The key for this alternative model, then, is that a historical point of departure is decisive for an eternal happiness. The learner cannot retreat from temporality into an inner sanctum of eternal ideas. Rather, she must encounter the eternal truth in and through the finitude and temporality of existence. The move from the Socratic to the Christian takes place between two forms of the paradox. Already for Socrates, the fact that the existing individual can relate to the eternal is paradoxical. The Christian alternative makes the paradox more radical by saying that the only way the divide between the learner and the teacher can be overcome is when the teacher, who is the eternal God, actually enters into time and becomes a historically existing individual. This difference should not obscure fundamental continuities, however. In a chapter on the absolute paradox, Klimakus depicts a Socrates unsure of his own humanity, whether he, a connoisseur of human nature, was a more curious monster than Typhon, or a friendlier and simpler being by nature sharing something divine. This paradoxicality of Socrates, a simultaneous pulling in two opposite directions, should not be despised since paradox is the passion of thought, and the thinker without the paradox is like the lover without passion, a mediocre fellow. Love is itself a paradox, a love for another which is rooted in a love of self. I love, and in loving, want to be lovable. It is only as radically other that the beloved can compliment me. Paradox is thus inherent in love, as it is in thought, as a passion which pulls in opposite directions simultaneously, and only in this pure becoming has any identity. Love changes the lover out of recognition, replicating that contradictory Socratic alignment between the monster and the god. The way in which passion inhabits thought is especially telling. Passion's highest expression is to will its own downfall. The passion of thought is to want to discover something that thought itself cannot think. This is a thinking which encounters the genuinely unknown, a border which it cannot cross using its own conceptual resources. The unknown is dubbed the god. The text goes on to argue that, despite the use of this label, the unknown remains the absolutely different in which there is no distinguishing mark, a difference which cannot be grasped securely. Any attempt to specify the nature of the unknown is arbitrariness, an arbitrariness which produces an image of the god. In the context of fragments, this appears to be a straightforward rejection of the Socratic position. Socrates holds that we can discover what is unknown to us, because it is in fact already hidden within it and we have only to recollect it. Against Socrates, Klimakush puts forward an alternative, radically theistic perspective. 
There is no truth in us, he suggests. It must come to us from the outside, from the side of the God. Returning to our passage on the unknown, it seems we are dealing with the same issue. Reason cannot know the God, and any attempt to do so must result in a kind of idolatry, a reduction of the absolutely different to terms we can grasp. However, there is another possibility lurking within these lines. Klimakush sets it out in this way. If the difference cannot be grasped securely because there is no distinguishing mark, then... As with all such dialectical opposites, so it is with the difference and the likeness. They are identical. This is presented as an instance of the understanding confusing itself with the difference. The issue appears to be this. In order to know the absolutely different as such, the understanding must be able to recognize it as absolutely different. But as soon as it does this, it has specified it, determined it, and annulled its absolute difference putting understanding, itself, in the place of what should be absolutely other. The way therefore seems clear for Klimakus to argue that any knowledge of the absolutely different must come to us from the God, from the unknown. However, this solution is itself problematic. How would we ever even recognize a communication from the unknown to be from the absolutely different? There seems to be no way beyond this paradox. That in order to know what is absolutely different, whether by my understanding or through a revelation, its absolute difference must be denied. It is here that the discussion takes a more obviously Lutheran turn. The difference between us and the God, Klimakush claims, must come from us. This is because anything that puts us into a positive relation to God must have its basis in what is akin between us and the divine. The difference, therefore, must be produced by us, a process of active self-alienation from the divine for which Klimakush uses the well-worn term, sin. The logic here is thin. There are other grounds upon which to establish the absolute difference of God, not least those of God's simplicity or infinity. By referring it to individual sin, Klimakush sidesteps a host of objections. How does sin produce what is absolutely different? Hasn't Klimakush arbitrarily shifted the debate from ontological categories to those of volition and vice? If thinking genuinely has this passion to think the unthinkable, and if the unthinkability of the absolute difference is to do with its non-determinate, non-finite refusal of any distinguishing mark, how can this consistently be something produced by the individual thinker? Perhaps, then, we should go back and take seriously Klimakush's reflection that any specification of the absolutely different is arbitrary. I suggest that, in his invocation of sin as the source of difference, Klimakush is himself being arbitrary. The justification for his move is not logical, but existential. It is by means of this assumption of sin that the difference between us and the god is dramatized and intensified so that it becomes a motivating problem for the individual whose absolute interest in their own eternal happiness is thereby awakened. The individual is stretched between the problematic, but real experience of absolute difference, and the impossible, but promised experience of absolute equality with God. 
The effect of this dramatization, however, is that individual participates in a pure becoming, in which the identity of self and God is confused. As Klimakrus notes, the paradox is already present in the understanding, or it is produced by the individual will. In one sense, therefore, the finite individual is capable of producing the infinite. The identity between the paradox inherent in the understanding, or love, or will, and that inherent in the individual's relation to the unknown cannot be securely distinguished. The absolute difference runs through the individual's own passions. So, when Klimakrus states that the difference has so confused the understanding, that it does not know itself and quite consistently confuses itself with the difference, we should read this literally. The confusion is entirely consistent. The confusion follows unholy from the relationship between the understanding and the absolutely different. Wholly consistent, and yet wholly mad. This is the situation that the individual finds themselves in. They are within a pure becoming, a becoming wholly indistinguishable from the absolute. But as this is a pure becoming, any attempt to fix it metaphysically, for example, in terms of an analogical relation between the soul and God, is refused. There are only more or less arbitrary narratives and dramatizations of this becoming, like that of the king who loves the lowly maiden, which plays such an important role in fragments. Repeatedly, Kalimakush is accused of plagiarism by an anonymous interlocutor in the text. He is, so the charge goes, passing off as a thought experiment what is actually just the familiar Christian story and doctrine. Of course, Kalimakush is well aware of this, and it becomes part of the irony of his presentation passing off as his own invention what, on his own grounds, could not have arisen in any human heart. However, what if we simply read the text literally? What if this whole account of the need for revelation and God's initiative is indeed an invention, an experiment with thought designed to ramp up the passion of thought and hasten its collapse? The logic of the indeterminable, of the eternal and the infinite, is that, by definition, it cannot be determined bounded, localized. It is experienced in and through a pure becoming, an infinitization of the individual's passion, even as that passion has to surrender its dreams of grasping and comprehending the absolutely other. It is noteworthy that at the moment of the understanding's downfall, Klimakush again invokes the Socratic dilemma. The person experiencing the paradox now no longer is sure whether he is perhaps a more complex animal than Typhon or whether he has in his being a gentler and diviner part. The Socratic is no longer held at a distance from a more authentic paradox, but becomes its model. The paradox is an experience of becoming monstrous slash divine, in such a way that the individual affirms all these directions at once. The inhuman dimension of this is underlined when Klimakush mocks the pretensions of the age to understand what a human being is. We shall not be as malicious as Sectus Empiricus, nor are we as witty, for he, as we know, quite correctly concluded from this that man is a dog, for man is what we all know, and we all know what a dog is. The logic of this should be followed both ways. In fact, we do not know what a dog is either. The encounter with the absolutely different rebounds upon the understanding, for it cannot be an encounter with a determinate field or object which we can localize outside of ourselves. 
we must become one with the absolute different, and simultaneously strange to ourselves. The encounter with the absolute is simultaneously a giving way of the fixed human ego, a release into paradoxically pure becoming. There is no longer anywhere to go, no teleological schema to follow. Equality with the divine cannot be an approximation to a determinate object, moving along a measurable scale. It can only be now, in the simultaneity of the understanding's passion and its infinite breakdown. Here is paradise. Ontologically, the basis for this is laid in Klimakush's implicit commitment to the univocity of being. Rejecting a priori arguments for the existence of God, Klimakush states that reasoning is always from existence, never towards it. Reason cannot determine what there is. The most it can do is develop the definition of a concept. This leads to his denial of the idea of an ontological hierarchy, of different levels of being. When it comes to factual being, to speak of more or less being is meaningless. A fly, when it is, has just as much being as the god. At the level of being itself, then, there is an indeterminacy. Being is not qualitatively distinguished by the entity which instantiates it. Even across the gulf between a fly and the god, a strange continuum persists. This appears to be very different to the Neoplatonism with which someone like Kusa is associated, which would appear to orient itself around the notion of ascent and descent through an ordered ontological hierarchy. However, matters are not so simple. As the logic of the absolute, the infinite, and the indeterminate confound notions of human identity and separation from the divine in fragments, so we find related dynamics at work in Kusa's unlearned ignorance. In turning now to that text, we may be able to tease out further the pure becoming of mystic knowledge. Kusa, the repetition of unity. Kusa is committed to the incomprehensibility of the absolute truth. He approaches this by first arguing that precise truth about anything is unattainable for the finite intellect. We approach truth by means of proportion, comparing what we know to what we do not know. But truth itself cannot be arrived in this manner, since truth is indivisible. When we turn to knowledge of the infinite, the problem is even more acute. Because the infinite escapes all proportion, the infinite, as infinite, is unknown. Nevertheless, we desire to know the infinite, Kusa assumes that our desire for knowledge cannot simply be in vain, but it must take a paradoxical form. It is our desire to know that we do not know. This qualification of the Socratic formulation by desire is important. It is not simply that we should recognize the limits of our knowledge and maintain intellectual humility. It is that unknowing, this constantly stimulated, denied and paradoxically satisfied passion, is the perfection of knowledge. The knower is not left at a distance, but occupies the very place of the paradox. For nothing more perfect comes to a person, even in the most zealous learning, than to be found most learned in the ignorance that is uniquely one's own. Knowledge is thus qualified by desire, a singular desire which is perfect in its kind, 
precisely because it exceeds or breaks without proportion. Like the Socratic paradox invoked by Climacus, therefore, this desiring knowledge has a touch of the monstrous about it. David Williams explains the importance of monstrosity for medieval language about the ineffable in a tradition derived from the Pseudo-Dionysus. As God is beyond all signification, so God is best referred to through negation. This includes the use of deformed signifiers which interrupt the seamless continuum between sign and thing. The best way of escaping the otherwise inevitable error of taking the sign for the thing was to construct signs so deformed and transgressive of the process of signification itself that confusion of the real with its language construct was impossible, even scandalous. For Cusa, this monstrosity is implicit in the notion of the maximum, defined in Anselmian terms as that beyond which there can be nothing greater. This maximum cannot be conceived in relative or proportional terms as the top of a cumulative scale, since such a scale could only ever be finite. Cusa turns to number to explain this. Number underlies the fact that anything finite is subject to more or less. Number is the abstract expression of the plurality and distinction of all things. Without it, all would collapse into indistinction. Moreover, there can be no maximum number, since any number can always be exceeded by another higher one. If we travel in the opposite direction, we seem to arrive at the minimum number, which Kusa defines as unity, beyond which we cannot go. However, he quickly affirms that unity cannot be number, for number, which admits a greater, can in no way be either simply minimum or simply maximum. The argument concludes, Therefore, absolute unity, which has no opposite, is absolute maximumness itself, which is the blessed God. This unity, because it is maximum, cannot be multiplied, for it is all that can be. It cannot, therefore, become number. The beginning and end of number cannot itself be counted. Readers of the text will already have learned that the maximum is free from all relation and opposition. Since there can be no greater or lesser than the maximum, it coincides with the minimum. Maximum and minimum are both superlative terms, conveying an absoluteness which cannot be conceived via proportional connection with any finite, countable, or measurable thing. This coincidence of opposites is ontologically necessary, but can only appear to the discursive mind as a paradox. Thus, maximum equality, which is neither other than nor different from anything, surpasses all understanding. The maximum is above all opposition, and is absolutely and actually all that can be. These statements are driven by a logic of infinity. Absolute maximumness could not be actually all possible things, unless it were infinite and the limit of all things, unable to be limited by them. The reasoning is clear. The infinite cannot be limited by anything. It must, therefore, coincide with all things. Nor can the infinite be mere potentiality, since that would imply that it is limited by the actual. When Kusa draws out the implications of his analysis of number, he can therefore state that God is so one that God is actually all that is possible. This is the unity that number, standing for the potentiality, 
particularity and measurability of all things necessarily presupposes. The way in which the transcendence of God is affirmed is thus coterminous with the identification of God with all things. Not merely the world as actual for us, but the actuality of all possible things. Transcendence is defined by indistinction, not the indistinction of lack, the absence of number which would cause all finite things to merge, but the indistinction of an affirmative infinity in which everything paradoxically counts as itself and as one. Of course, it's quite possible to read Cusa here as reproducing standard Neoplatonic tropes, in which ontological hierarchy and the transcendence of the one is affirmed, and in which finite things achieve their relative degree of perfection via participation in the one. However, as de Montmoran reminds us, Cusa was something of a dilettante in philosophy. Although a philosophical Platonist at heart, Cusa is willing to experiment in his quest for unity with the Infinite One. Cusanus' specific originality consists in his use of nominalist claims about God's infinite and unlimited power, combined with the scholastic claim that God is pure esse, pure actuality, actus purus, maximal actual being, to make the claim that God is the infinite actualization of all possibilities. Moran notes that, as far as numbers were concerned, Kusa's allegiance to nominalism was half-hearted at best. Nevertheless, this kind of philosophical openness suggests the viability of interpretations of Kusa's learned ignorance in ways that depart from Neoplatonic orthodoxy. This is not least because, arguably, Neoplatonism does not actually resolve the problem of how the simple, uncountable one both generates and relates to the many. In this case, Kusa's flirtation with nominalism connects with his rejection of analogy and proportion as viable ways to refer and relate to the infinite one. There is an intriguing collection with Deleuze. As Joshua Ramey argues, nominalism displaces the cosmic hierarchy according to which Neoplatonic schema of participation made sense. For Deleuze, writing with Guattari, this is part of a struggle or contestation for eminence within religious ideas which they seek to take further. Specifically, Ramey claims that Deleuze drives his theory of ideas from cues and insights, according to which the world can never be fully revelatory of God, even though God is the real content of every idea. A full exploration of Deleuze on ideas and their expression is beyond our scope here. The key insight is that God's transcendence is re-articulated so as to involve an imminent identification of God in all things. An equality of being is substituted for a hierarchy of hypostases. For things are present to the same being, which is itself present in things. Immanence corresponds to the unity of complication and explication, of inherence and implication. As Eugene Thacker puts it, Kusa offers us a non-synthetic or disjunctive monism. The coincidence of opposites of which Kusa writes is not the sublation of contradictions into undifferentiated unity, but their paradoxical unity in singular difference. This means that God cannot simply be set over against or above the world, but nor can God and the world simply be absorbed into an anonymous mass. 
Thacker argues that Cusa wishes to hold together the immanence of the divine in all things, with a dynamic picture of the divine being expressed, unfolded, or explicated in and through all things. The tension inherent in this pairing of static immanence with dynamic unfolding is taken up by Deleuze, who seeks to radicalize it, identifying immanence with pure becoming. But already in Kusa, we see him pushing the logic of his position in this direction. Note how he prepares for the Trinitarian interpretation of the maximum, by arguing that unity is also the principle of equality, preceding all inequality and otherness. Kusa has to find a way of distinguishing unity and equality, without making them other to one another. He does this by claiming that equality is generated in finite things. Generation is the repetition of unit, or the multiplication of the same nature, as when a parent passes on their nature to a child. However, when applied to the absolute unity of the maximum, the generation of unity from unity is a single repetition of unity. Repetition is not merely finite operation, but a quality of the infinite itself. A single repetition which is the realization of all possibility, that which precedes all specific differences without absorbing them or grounding them in a transcendence. The unity which precedes all things is always already a repetition. The one does not first exist and then express or repeat itself. A dynamic form of expression is constitutive of the one. Here, Deleuze's pure becoming may be invoked again, since this paradoxical repetition moves in both directions at once, unfolding and enfolding the infinite in the finite. The fact that the finite is potentially infinite destabilizes the Neoplatonic cosmos of participation. When Kusa states that equality of being is that which is in a thing as neither more nor less, as nothing too much and as nothing too little. If it is too much in a thing, the thing is monstrous. If it is there too little, the thing does not exist. He perhaps unwittingly betrays this thought. The reality is that the finite always contains more than itself, is always monstrous. It is precisely this monstrosity of all things the refusal to stay in place, which expresses the infinite. Kusa maintains, in traditional fashion, that finite things participate in the infinite unequally. But he then goes on to pull the rug out from this assertion by arguing that no one can understand this participation. And he's prepared to advance his imminent univocal logic of the infinite to quite radical degrees. For who could understand infinite unity which infinitely precedes all opposition, where all things are enfolded, without composition, in simplicity of unity, where there is neither other nor different, where a human does not differ from a lion and sky does not differ from earth. Remember that, without difference, there is nevertheless repetition. This is how unity is the actualization of infinite possibility in a dynamic, pure becoming, whose moments cannot be ranked into a hierarchy. 
A little later, Kusa writes, Who could understand how all things, though different contingently, are the image of that single infinite form, as if the creature were an occasioned god? Just as an accident is an occasioned substance, and a woman is an occasioned man, the infinite form is received only in a finite way. Consequently, every creature is, as it were, a finite infinity, or a created god, so that it exists in the way in which this could best be. The Latin occasionatus could be used, as it was by Aquinas, to suggest an inferior, and in the case of woman, misbegotten, relationship to the primary term. However, Nancy Hudson argues that this is not the case, that the context suggests that difference in creation is a result of divine fecundity, not slotting creatures into a fixed hierarchy. Everything is a finite infinity or a created god, and so exhibits something of the unruly monstrosity which attends the becoming unfolded of the divine. Kusa can plausibly be read as articulating the classic problems of transcendence and immanence, the one and the many, while drawing upon a dynamic univocal ontology to undercut hierarchical notions of transcendence and to release immanence from stasis. The end of this endeavor is also its origin, the becoming one of the infinite and the finite. As Hudson states, for Kusa, deification is an original condition for all things, a theosis which is an already realized destiny. The practical, mystical aim of Kusa's work is therefore inseparable from his experimentations in ontology. He contests, at least partly, on behalf of a dynamic and infinite imminence against the world as ordered by hierarchies of analogical participation. Conclusion Now I say that God, so far as he is God, is not the perfect end of created beings. The least of these beings possesses in God as much as he possesses. If it could be that a fly had reason, and could with its reason seek out the eternal depths of the divine being from which it issued, I say that God, with all that he has as he is God, could not fulfill or satisfy the fly. So therefore, let us pray to God that we may be free of God, and that we may apprehend and rejoice in that everlasting truth in which the highest angel and the fly and the soul are equal. There where I was established where I wanted what I was, and was what I wanted. As I stated at the outset of this essay, I am not claiming to offer exhaustive interpretations of each thinker, nor account for all the nuances of their thought, but to use their work to focus on a problem, the constitutive paradoxicality of the infinite. For both Kusa and Kierkegaard, this question cannot be divorced from the itself paradoxical, practical question of how we relate to the infinite, of how we measure up to the immeasurable. What makes this connection more than superficial is a shared commitment to a univocal, non-analogical ontology of dynamic imminence. 
Deleuze's notion of pure becoming is suggestive here, since it denotes an unconditioned reality, which is neither ontologically transcendent nor static, and which is constituted by a paradoxical repetition prior to all limited identity. Such an infinite, imminent becoming defies conceptual capture. It is figured by the monstrous identity Kierkegaard attributes to the Socratic thinker, and which Kusa locates in the indistinction without sublation of human, lion, and sky in the maximum. Such figures find an echo in Eckhart's words at the opening of this conclusion. Teleology and the hierarchy upon which it depends are set aside. There is an affirmation of the radical ontological equality of beings, one which invites us to jettison certain notions of transcendence as inimical to the infinity of the divine life unfolded in all things. None of this is to suggest a seamless compatibility between Kierkegaard and Kusa's work, not least because the reading offered here is partial and contentious. Nevertheless, it proposes a concept of infinity as inherently paradoxical, without reference to a transcendence secured via analogy or participation in a hierarchy. Kusa may show little interest in the drama of subjectivity, Kierkegaard's antipathy to speculation, and the co-option of mystical figures by his idealist contemporaries, lead him to explore more obviously existential idioms. Nevertheless, the mystical and the existential communicate, and they communicate through the paradoxes of language and understanding. They discover, within the finite, a monstrous equality with the infinite and divine. Letting go of the determined God releases the infinite repetition of the divine and the infinite passion of the understanding in their mutual complication. Kierkegaard and Kuss's texts inhabit simultaneously the language of pure transcendence and the language of pure eminence. The former language is disarmed and the latter is complicated. It is the expression of the infinite. In neither case is there a pre-existing experience which is then, inadequately, put into words. That would only reproduce the alienation, which is precisely the problem to be avoided, since it would continue to portray the infinite as negatively determinable by its being other than us, or other than language. Such a move, for all its apparent humility, is in fact a form of idolatry, since it assumes a standpoint above existence which can determine the infinite in opposition to the finite. In contrast, Kierkegaard and Kusa insist on the paradoxicality of the infinite. The resulting emptiness of determination is the way to the mystical production of happiness, as the flip side of the existential encounter with the void. Where there is nothing, the infinite occurs. One thing needs to be clarified. The point is not to abandon the religious transcendent whilst keeping the secular imminent the same as it was, which is the strategy of those atheists who mock Nietzsche's madman when he proclaims the death of God in the marketplace. Ironically, it is when we abandon a transcendent telos that we are exposed to the unassimilable real, the unconditioned pure becoming that is neither elsewhere nor other than what slash where we are. This unconditioned becoming is never exhausted by what is, 
or defined in relation to a pre-existing secular human subjectivity. So God and the self are united at last in their mutual dissolution. The paradox of being makes us strange to ourselves, the monster and the mystic, together in the equality of God.